Praise the Lord. Welcome, Gary, Judy. Nice to see your youthful, lovely faces again. This is my second week in a row here, and I'm getting spoiled seeing Brother Charles and Kevin back there. Nice to have you. Good to have everybody with us. Um, <clears throat> I was kind of interested in Fauci's testimony about how he found himself dry and empty and down. and We all have that experience, and it's critical to know what to do when you feel like that. I don't want to shock you, but I felt like that yesterday morning when I woke up. Must have been the same demon, brother, visited both of us. But discouragement comes. And you can either give into it, or you learn how to overcome it. And King David had an amazing revelation about God. And he knew what it was many, many times in his life to be all alone. He didn't have anybody around to pep him up, cheer him on, encourage him. David learned the art of encouraging himself in the Lord. Encouraging himself in the Lord. Let me tell you something. These are very dark times in which we're living. Now you might have a good day once in a while, a bad day once in a while. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the spiritual atmosphere that we are presently in. It is very dark. It is very oppressive. And if you give into it, it will discourage you and pin you to the ground. And you'll feel useless, worthless, hopeless, like you can't see any future for yourself, and no wonder so many people are committing suicide. That's their only way out. They're so hopeless, and they're so down and discouraged. But you know, yesterday morning I realized I need to get a hold of something from God's Word to encourage myself. And I found it. And I'm going to pass it on to you today. And as always... When we turn to the, to the Lord, when we turn to the Word of God, it just lifts us right up. And man, by the time I was done with these scriptures, very familiar scriptures, I was soaring. I mean, I was just more than a conqueror. Every devil was under my feet. And I knew God was with me. I knew I was on the winning team. That's the amazing thing about the good news. Listen to those words. Good news. Good news cheers you up. That's why we need to spend time regularly. I don't care if you've been a believer for 50, 60, 70 years. The good news is still for you. It's still to encourage you. And we need to go back frequently and remind ourselves, what is this good news anyway? And I'm going to take you fairly quickly today through two chapters in the New Testament. Well, the better part of two chapters. I want you to turn with me to Romans 7. And if you're at all familiar with the book of Romans, Romans is written very differently from many of the other epistles of Paul. It's written more like a a theology textbook. And we have something called systematic theology. And of all the letters that Paul wrote, the letter to the Romans is the most systematic. He starts right off in chapter 1 saying, I want to present the gospel to you. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. But then, for the rest of chapters 1, 
2 and the better part of chapter 3, all he does is talk about bad news. How wicked we are, how sinful we are, what hypocrites we are even when we're religious. And he goes on and on and on and finally says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody's missed the mark. There's no hope for everybody. None righteous, no, not one. Well, I thought he was going to preach good news. Seems like he's gotten way off track. But Paul knew exactly what he was doing. He had to first present the bad news before he could begin to even explain the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to do, but just to go up to a sinner out on the street and say, uh, Jesus loves you, bye. Well, it might make an impact on them, but they're probably going to stand there well, so what? Paul went much deeper than that. He said, you are such a rotten sinner. So lost to the core. But now, let me tell you the good news. God sent His Son to take your sin. God sent His Son to die in your place. And if you will trust in Him, He will actually not only forgive all your sins, but declare you righteous. And so, in Romans 3, 4, and 5, Paul develops at great length the doctrines of justification by faith. I've been made righteous, not by what I do, but by trusting in Christ alone. Then he goes into another doctrine that's very important. I'm not going to go into all these today, but the doctrine of reconciliation. That's different. Reconciliation is when you were enemies and somehow you make peace between two warring parties. Well, the two parties at war here were you and God. He says very plainly in Romans 5, we were enemies of God. But now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through His death on the cross, we have been reconciled to God. We have peace now with God. And then in Romans 6, he talks about the truth of baptism and identification with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And he basically explains that death is the secret to overcoming sin. When you're dead, you can't sin anymore. And he says, therefore, reckon yourselves dead. Consider yourselves dead with Christ, alive unto God, Mortify the members of your body so they won't be slaves of sin anymore, but make them slaves of righteousness. Okay, so far so good. But then we come to a rough patch in Romans chapter 7. And there's been a lot of controversy among commentators, Bible scholars, over what exactly all this means. And before I make any comment about it. I want to read to you a rather lengthy portion in Romans chapter 7. And please notice as we're reading this from verse 9 we're going to begin. Notice this is Paul speaking in the first person. He's not talking about someone else. He's talking about himself. And I want you to pay close attention to the tense of the verbs he uses, whether it's past or present. Most of what he's talking about is present tense. In other words, he's not talking about something that happened to him 30 years before. 
this is something that Paul seemed to experience after his wonderful, transforming encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. All right, here we go. Romans 7, from verse 9 to verse 24. He says, Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. These are strong words he's using. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am, notice that, not I was, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now I know nobody else in here can relate to that, but me and Paul, right? And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Remember that word, law. It's key to what we're going to discuss. I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in my members, the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Not I was, I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I made a list of some of the words we just read here that Paul used. Dead, deceived, unspiritual, slave, prisoner, wretched man. The law of sin was at work in him, producing death. Now this is not a very encouraging picture. 
This is not the kind of stuff you would expect to come from the greatest apostle. But I thank God that men like Paul were honest. They shared what was really going on in their lives so that the light of the gospel could become that much brighter. And there's a method to Paul's madness. There's a reason why he's going into so much detail about his wretched state because he's about to turn a corner here. Before we go there, I want to show you a couple of other interesting things here. Again, I think we can all relate to what he's saying. We come to church, we hear a message, we've, we've made up our mind, that's it. I'm going to live for God this week, I'm going to pray six hours a day, I'm going to fast Wednesday and Friday, I'm going to read 20 chapters of the Bible a day, I'm going to really live for God this week. But then when we get home, all that seems to fly away and other desires take over, and by the end of the week, we're down in the dumps, we haven't even opened our Bible, we haven't prayed five minutes, and we haven't done a thing for the Lord. We've all been there, we've all done that. It's called the law of sin. It's a law. And Paul went into this in depth in chapter 6, that that sin nature that's in us, yes, it's crucified, dead, and buried with Christ in water baptism, but... The process of sanctification requires you and me to daily, hourly, moment by moment, reckon it dead. Consider myself dead to sin and alive to God. Apparently Paul forgot some of his own preaching. And I can relate to that. I often forget what I preach up here, and then the Lord reminds me, or others who love me remind me, uh, didn't you preach about that on Sunday? Look at the way you're acting now. You know? And so here he is. I'm unspiritual. I'm a prisoner. I'm a slave to sin. Sin is at work in me, and it's killing me. It's bringing death into my life. Now, for a little bit of trivia, for those of you that like trivia, and you can check me on this. The passage we just read, it spanned Romans 7, 9 through verse 24. I went back and counted over 40, 40, 40 times Paul uses the first person pronouns. I, me, my, myself. 40 times I, 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 me, 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 my, 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 myself, myself, myself. One preacher has referred to this as an overdose of vitamin I. <laughs> vitamin I. It'll kill you. And you know what Paul is discovering here, and you and I must discover? When it's all about me... And I and myself, and I'm all introspective and trying to find the good within me and trying to find the deeper purposes within me. We're always going to come up wretched, miserable, and discouraged. Because as Paul so rightly found, there is no good thing in me. The answer was not in me. The answer was not in I. The answer was not in Paul. And that's where he finally turns this thing around 
in the very next verse. Romans 7.25, he answers his own question. Let me read verse 24 again. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now remember, he's writing this letter to the church in Rome. Is this the kind of stuff you want them reading in the Sunday service? Oh, we got a new letter from Paul. Listen, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Ah, but he's going somewhere. Look at the next verse. Thanks be to God. Notice it's no longer I, me, myself. He's taken his eyes off of Paul and he's lifted them up. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. But now, he's got hope. God. Jesus Christ. That's the one that can rescue me from this body of death. Sooner or later, if you haven't already experienced it, it's coming where you really come to grips with the fact that there just isn't anything good in you, in your flesh, in your sinful nature. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 150 years. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. Paul is trying to teach them, okay, you got saved. You've been justified by faith. You've been reconciled with God. You took water baptism. Your sinful nature has been buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. God filled you with the Holy Spirit, raised you up to walk in newness of life. But now you're going to have to keep at it in what we call sanctification. It's a daily discipline, a daily process of reckoning myself dead to sin and alive to God. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, I was thinking about what was really happening here, and of course now we're going to launch into chapter 8 of Romans, and it's going to be like two different people talking. It's going to be like two different books. And the contrast is very striking, and I think it's deliberate. And you know... Oftentimes, when you go to a jewelry store and you're looking at the pearls or the diamonds, they'll use a black velvet background upon which they place the pearl or the diamond. Why do they do that? Contrast. It's all about contrast. You certainly wouldn't want a white velvet background behind a diamond. It's just not going to show off the diamond. So you want the greatest contrast. So they put something black behind that shining pearl to bring out all of its brilliance. I think what Paul is doing here is again, like he did in the opening chapters of Romans, again, he's painting this terrible black background of human nature, fallen human nature, including himself, 
And now, he's going to take the Romans to a place he hasn't even taken them yet in the previous chapters of Romans, where he's going to talk about things like predestination, God's eternal purpose for your life, glorification, uh, being made like Christ, being more than a conqueror, and on and on he's going to go. And we're going to go through it fairly quickly, and I would encourage you to go back and study this entire 8th chapter again, and come back to it regularly whenever you feel those spiritual blues starting to descend, where you feel a little bit defeated, or a little bit down, or a little bit less than, you know, on fire for God. I guarantee you this will stir you up and get you back on your feet. The title of my message, by the way, is Glorious Freedom. Glorious Freedom. And the first thing Paul is going to address in Romans chapter 8 is this law he keeps talking about, the law of sin. It's a law that he recognized he had to obey. Even when he didn't want to do something, the law said, you've got to do it. And here's his response. Romans 8, we're going to read verses 1 to 4 now. Therefore, that's an important word, therefore, ties everything we just read, all the negative stuff, wretched man that I am, he finally realizes there's hope in God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of Christ, in light of the good news of Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I like the word now. It's not tomorrow. It's not yesterday. It's right now. By faith, right now, there's an answer already for Paul's plight. Right now, there is no condemnation for whatever happened in the past, Whatever you might even be thinking about doing in the future, no condemnation. Period. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because, he's going to explain why. Because, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Hold it there. Two different laws. One is superior to the other. One has greater force than the other. One is powerful. We read about that in chapter 7. It's the law of sin. The law of sin and death. It produces death in you. And it's a law that must be obeyed Unless a higher law comes along. And here's the good news. There's a higher law. Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Set me free. I am gloriously freed from the law of sin and death. Let's go on. For what the law was powerless to do 
in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son. Notice the absence of I, my, me, myself now. Notice the subject is God. God did what God sent, what God was up to. For the law was powerless to do what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did. God did. Say that with me. God did. Had nothing to do with you or me or Paul. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And here's something many Christians miss. It wasn't just so that all my sins could be forgiven. Something far greater happened on the cross. We talked a little bit about this last week. Something else was happening as Jesus was hanging there on the tree. He was being condemned. He was being accursed by God, His own Father. And here's why. He condemned sin in sinful man. He took all your sin, all my sin, and condemned it in one person, in the person of His Son, who was made to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man. Next verse. In order that the righteous requirements of the law, now this is talking about the law of God, not the law of sin, the, the righteous requirements of God's law, in order that those requirements might be fully met in us, how many of you would like to live a life that fully satisfies all of the requirements of God's law, God's righteousness? No one? My hands are both up. It's called righteousness. It's called real righteousness. Where you stand before God, and God looks at you and said, Son, you fulfilled all my requirements. That's what Father God was able to say to His Son, Jesus. You fulfilled all of my requirements. You never sinned. There's no sin in you. But now, the good news is Jesus was made a sin offering. God condemned sin in the body of Jesus in order that the righteous requirements of God's law might now be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. The good news, there's a higher law. It cancels out the old law. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus now frees us from that old law of sin and death. Now, <coughs> I mentioned sanctification requires us to do something. We don't just sit around and wait for God to finish what He started. We have to cooperate with the Spirit of God. And that's what He's going to talk about in these next verses. Let's read from 5 to 14. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Notice the importance of the mind, where our mind is. Okay, continue. The mind of sinful man is death, 
But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. When I got to this verse, I wrote in big letters on my notepad, Be controlled in your mind by the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit control your thoughts. Surrender your mind. Surrender your thoughts daily, moment by moment, to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, take control of my mind. You know, we talk about wandering thoughts. Where do they come from? I'm not sure. Some of them seem to come from outside. Some of them seem to come from inside. But I don't much care where they come from. I'm charged by God to take control over them. You are not under the control of your thoughts. You must learn how to gain control over your thoughts through the power of the Holy Spirit. The mind of sinful man is death. And if you keep entertaining you know, some bad thought, maybe somebody did something bad to you at work, and you're stewing about it, and you're sitting there all night and all the next day, I'm going to get even with Joe. Oh boy, am I going to get even with him. I hate Joe. I'll never forgive Joe for what he did. Da, 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 da. And it starts eating us up, eating us up, and the devil's having a field day. And what's happening is death is coming. Death is coming into your mind through those thoughts. Whereas, if you would turn to God and do His Word and say, Father, forgive me. Help me to let go of this bitterness. Help me to have forgiveness in my heart. Holy Spirit, take control of my mind and cast down all these thoughts and imaginations in my head that are warring against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The mind of sinful man is death. The mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Next verse. The sinful mind, uh uh-oh, is hostile to God. We actually become enemies in our minds. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Notice he's still on the mind. This is all taking place in the mind. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Cannot. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Keep going. And, one of my favorite verses. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also quicken, give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. I don't know if that excites you, but it still does after 43 years. The same Spirit, the very same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead has come to live in me. The power that brought Jesus up from the grave dwells here now. I don't have to go anywhere looking for power. It's in me. It's in you. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. I like that. Next verse. 
Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, not to the sinful nature, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. If you don't practice sanctification, you're going to die. If you don't learn this process that Paul's teaching about here, you will die. Spiritual death will overcome you in your mind. You'll be overcome by all these things Paul wrote about in chapter 7. You will die if you succumb to that sinful nature. But if by the Spirit, say that with me, by the Spirit, not by yourself, by the Spirit, with the Spirit's help in other words, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Remember, it's the law of the Spirit. And here's the clincher. Because those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. He's kind of repeating himself here for the sake of emphasis. It's really not complicated, but... Sometimes it's hard for us to master. It's simply surrendering control to the Holy Spirit, even in my mind and in my thoughts, and then allowing the Holy Spirit to enable us to start to put to death desires, thoughts, impulses that are contrary to the law and the righteousness of God. All right, let's move on from verse 15. So he's talked about freedom from the law of sin and death. He's talked about a life in the Spirit where the Spirit of God is now enabling us to keep putting down the sinful nature and walk, live in the Spirit. Next, he's going to talk about another important aspect of the good news we are children of God that's nothing to take for granted the apostle John says behold what manner of love he has lavished on us that we should be called children of God every time I read that I remember who I was before I was a follower of Jesus. And then it makes sense to me. No wonder John was amazed. He was remembering the old John, the raw fisherman, whose mouth spewed out four-letter words or however many letters they needed to curse in Hebrew. <laughs> he was a foul-mouthed fisherman, I'm sure. Crude, mean dude. He and his brother got the reputation of being sons of thunder. I don't know what that came from, but they must have been a tough bunch. And here he is, after he's been saved for many years, he's still amazed. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that John should be called a child of God, let alone be an apostle, that he should be called a child of God. And this is the next thing he's going to talk about. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave. Anybody thankful for that? We did not receive a spirit of slavery. It's not a spirit of fear. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. 
It's a very interesting reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Sonship. And by Him, by that Holy Spirit, we are now able to cry, Abba, Father. We're able to really understand the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. We know God as our Father because the Spirit of Sonship has come into us. Notice this. He's there 24-7. And we're going to read in the next verse or two. He's constantly reminding you, testifying to you, telling you, you are a child of God. You don't need anybody else telling you that. You've got someone inside you telling you now the spirit of sonship. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit. Notice that. Two spirits. The Holy Spirit is talking to your spirit. He's not just talking, it's a very strong word. He's testifying. He's bearing witness. I testify to you, Spirit of Wayne, that you are a child of God. I don't care how you feel. I don't care how you look. I don't care what other people think about you. I testify to you that you are a child of God. Man, that's worth a million bucks there. To be able to go through your day, go through your week, go through your life with your head held high, knowing I'm a child of God. How do I know it? The Spirit bears witness with my spirit. It gets better. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Pause there. How many of you would like to have been born into a wealthy family? Come on, be honest. And you can't wait for the old man to croak, right? Because he's going to leave you all of his money, all of his airplanes, all of his cars, all the real estate, all the jewelry, all the gold. He's going to leave it all to you because you're the only son and you're the heir. The inheritance is yours. Paul says, I got better news than that. You are an heir of God. How wealthy is God? And you're a joint co-heir with His Son, Jesus Christ. So whatever belongs to the Son, belongs to you. That sounds too good to be true. And it does. But it's true. We, because of birth into God's family, we are now heirs of God, joint co-heirs with Christ, what are we going to share in? His glory. Look at the next verse. I consider that our present sufferings, we make a big deal out of our present sufferings, don't we? And, I mean, not to minimize them. They hurt. But Paul learned to put everything in perspective. Our present sufferings, he had a lot of them. A lot more than you and I do. 
Our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Sharing in His glory. He's going to get a little deeper into that further along in Romans chapter 8. But for now, we've learned. I'm free from the law of sin and death. I have a life in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of sonship. And I know that I'm a child of God. And therefore, I'm an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. From verse 19. This next section deals with hope. We were speaking a little bit about this on the prayer line Friday night. We live in a hopeless generation, hopeless world. Man, if all you base your life and hope and joy on is the nightly news, you're finished, man. You are finished. What's the latest terror attack? What's the latest suicide? What's the latest bombing? What's the latest natural disaster? What's the latest country trying to launch a nuclear weapon? I mean, it's discouraging. It's hopeless. But the good news is, we have hope. We have hope in Jesus Christ. And here's the hope from 19. The creation waits Did you know the creation's waiting? The birds, the mountains, the grass, the whole creation knows something. It's waiting for something. The whole creation waits in eager expectation for you, for me. That's what it says. The whole creation was cursed after man's fall. The whole creation was dramatically transformed. And ever since that day, it's waiting in hope. Because it knows God has a plan for even the creation. So it's waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Four, the creation was subjected to frustration, vanity, some Bibles say, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. God did that. God pronounced a curse on the creation after Adam and Eve sinned. Death came, all kinds of curses came, and, you know, I'm, I'm a biologist, and I still... I'm amazed as I look at so many things in creation that obviously were not there in the beginning. You have all these poisonous animals, vicious predators with, you know, 10-inch teeth and poison spines and stingers and they eat each other and they've got all these amazing mechanisms to, to kill, to steal, to sting and to destroy. And it can't possibly have been that way in the original creation. So something dramatically changed, even in the animals. You've got stinging plants and all kinds of stuff. Where did all that come from? God did it. By the will of the one who subjected it to that frustration. But 
isn't God good? He did it in hope. He even gave the creation hope. One day, this is all going to be done with. So, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Any scientist knows the whole universe is decaying. The whole universe is running down. The sun, the stars, they're all slowly but surely burning out. Don't worry, the sun will be, still be shining when you pass away or when Jesus comes. But there is an end when it will burn out. And actually, scientists have calculated when the entire universe comes to what's called heat death. Everything dies. And the universe, in one sense, is often likened up to a watch that somebody wound up, and it's slowly winding down. We see decay everywhere. Here's why. The creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into, here's the title of my message, the glorious freedom of the children of God. You notice the creation is waiting for us. The creation is waiting for us to fulfill our calling, our purpose, and our destiny so that they can be liberated. Next verse. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons The next part explains what he's talking about. The redemption of our bodies. Our final resurrection that takes place in the rapture, whether we're alive or whether we've already died in Christ, we will be raised up and meet Him in the air and we will receive resurrection bodies. That is our eager hope. We're groaning and we're waiting for that day. And let me tell you something. It can come none too soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want out of here. I want done with this. Let me finish my work. Let me finish my destiny. But I want to go home. I want to be in that new resurrection body with you forever and ever and ever. You know, once in a while, God gives me just a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. Man, the singing, the praise, the worship, the music, the beauty. I mean, not to mention, of course, the glory of God there. But just all the angels, all the saints. Can you imagine what it's going to be like worshiping God? You never get tired. There's no clock. There's no time. There's no work to go to. You're just enjoying God forever and ever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Next verse. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? Hope is always something in the future. You don't already have it. Christians have hope. We're hoping for something we don't yet have. Next verse. 
But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul in another place he says, we're not like the rest of the world who have no hope. We have hope. Even in death we have hope. Death is not the end for the Christian. It's going to sleep for a little while. Waiting for resurrection. We have hope. Then the next few verses, 26 and 27, he talks again about help that comes from the Holy Spirit. Anybody here ever need help? Oh, Kevin and I. We'll talk after the service, brother. Apparently, we're the only ones that need it. I need help. I need help. I'm not trying to sound spiritual or humble or anything. I need help, and I'm very much aware of it now. I'm constantly calling on God for help. And I thank God for the helper. And I don't have to go here or there because the help's in me. In the same way, the Spirit helps us. Say the Spirit helps us. The Spirit helps us. In our strength. In our composure. No. He helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Let me help you here. There are going to be times in your life where you're so overwhelmed with the problems, the burdens, the challenges. You don't even know what to pray for. You don't know how to pray and you don't even have the strength to pray. And you know what? The Holy Spirit starts praying for you. He's in you. He's not you. He's in you. And He starts to intercede with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Okay, I'm rushing because I want to get to the best part. Verses 28 to 30 are way over my head theologically. But I'm going to try to at least read what Paul wrote here. And we know, everybody knows this verse, right? All things work together for good. Period. No. No period yet. You've got to get this whole thought if that's going to work. We know that in all things, what's all things mean? You mean all things? No, it can't be. All things? You mean even losing your job? You mean even somebody saying bad stuff about you? All things, in all things, God works. God is at work. For good of a particular group of people. It's those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. Alright, what is His purpose? I, I often hear Christians, oh, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm asking God, what is your will for my life? What is your purpose? I get that, but sometimes, you know, we just need to read the Bible. Because he, he tells us right here what his purpose is. For those God foreknew, now this is some real serious theology here. 
For those God foreknew, He knew them ahead of time, He also predestined, He had a destiny for them ahead of time. What is that destiny? It's to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Remember, we're co-heirs, joint heirs with Jesus. It gets even better than that. God's purpose from before the beginning of time was that you and I not only become children of God, but we grow up, we mature, we are transformed into the likeness of His Son. I didn't make this up. It's in the Bible. And some people hear this and they say, Ah, oh, that's crazy. That can't possibly be. Well, I know it sounds crazy, but it's biblical. And rather than dismiss it as, Oh, you're talking about me becoming like Jesus? Give me a break. I'll never be like Him. Well, Apparently you're in disagreement with the one who already has a predestined plan for your life, which is to bring you into conformity with His Son. You can't mince these words. Conformed to the likeness of His Son. All the translations read the same. And He foreknew you. He predestined this. It's been in his mind long, long, long before you were thought to conform to the likeness of his son so that he can have many brothers. The firstborn among many brothers in eternity. Look at the next verse. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So, the good news is, you're called. You're justified. You're glorified and you're predestined. And guess what? You had nothing to do with any of it. God did it. It's not me, myself, and I now. This is what God did. God foreknew. God predestined. God has a plan. And when you and I surrender to that plan, yes indeed, all things work together for good. doesn't mean they're all going to feel good. doesn't mean we're going to like them all. But they're all working to that one end, that I would be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. I jotted this down yesterday. God has much bigger plans than you do. God has much bigger plans than you do. I mean, in your wildest dreams right now, God goes way beyond that. So the best thing you and I can do is surrender. Say, God, have your way in my life. Have your way in my life. I want this predestined plan to be completed and finalized. And we only have a little bit of time for it to take place. So work, 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 Lord.
from verse 31 to 36. What then shall we say in response to this? Now, I've, I've wondered about that, and others have too. What exactly is Paul referring to? Is he referring to everything he said thus far in his letter to the Romans? Or possibly just the previous few sentences? I don't know. Or is it just this one question? If God is for us, who can be against us? Got any response to that? I mean, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who? Well, he's going to go through a few. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now remember earlier in the chapter he said there's no condemnation? He's going to explain a little more why that's true now. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. Anybody ever try to bring a charge against a Christian? (laughs) Read the book of Acts. It's like a broken record. Every time the apostles go somewhere, they raise somebody from the dead, they cast out some demons, people get saved, they have a revival, and they get hauled into court, thrown into jail, put in the stocks, some kind of charges trumped up against him. Over and over and over it goes. Oh yeah, there are plenty of charges that will be brought against you and me. Not only in earthly courts, more importantly, Satan, the name Satan means accuser. That's what the name means. That's what he's good at. And Revelation 12.11 says he's busy. He stands day and night before the throne accusing the brethren. Accusing you and me. That's his job. So, Paul's question is, who would dare bring a charge against one of God's chosen? Well, the devil would. But, He puts this in. It is God. Remember, God is greater than all. God is for us. So who can be against us? It is God who has now justified you. He taught that in Romans 3 and 4. All you got to do is believe in Jesus and you're justified. No more charges against you. Your record is clean. So, bring on the charges God has already justified. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? Remember, no condemnation in Christ. Does that mean the devil stops trying? Oh, 
if he can get just one little opening in one of your ears, he'll go on and on and on. You're no good. You're never going anywhere. You're a loser. God doesn't love you. He's finished with you. Da 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 da. Condemnation, condemnation, guilt, discouragement, down, 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 down. Until finally, you remember. Who is that that condemns Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God? Praise God for that. He's sitting at the right hand of God, triumphant and victorious, but that's not where Paul ends. He's at the right hand of God doing something. What is he doing? He is interceding for us. The Holy Spirit in us is interceding for us. God is for us. He has declared us righteous. And at the right hand of the Father is our defense attorney. That's actually what John calls him. Our advocate, our attorney, is standing before the judge pleading our case. He's innocent. He's innocent. She's innocent. No guilt. No sin. I took all the sins, therefore I have every right and authority to intercede for them. He's at the right hand interceding for us. Verse 35. Who? Some Bibles say what. Let's cover it all and say who or what. (laughs) Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Those are some pretty serious things. Can they separate us from the love of Christ? Next verse. Well, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That was the life of the early Christians. That's the life of many Christians in the world today. They're dying. They're dying for their faith. They're like lambs led to the slaughter. But here comes the final climactic statement. No. No. Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, say in In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You know, over the years, my understanding, my vision of victory has changed. In the early years of my Christian life, I thought victory meant, you know, all your sicknesses had been healed, all your bills had been paid, everybody loved you. Uh, you were successful, prosperous, you had no problems. That was victory. And as years went on, and I never really realized that in my experience, because I was always having battles, problems, opposition, demons, devils, things coming against me, I thought, I must not be victorious. And then I began to see more clearly in the Scriptures, no, 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 no. A real conqueror is a conqueror in these things. Not once they've passed, 
Not once they're over, he's got the victory in the situation because the victory is not in the circumstances, the victory is inside of you. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, the Bible says. Faith is the victory. Now, who doesn't like to be delivered of their sickness or their problems or have their bills paid? Everybody loves that, of course. And God can do all of that. But sometimes He leads us in these things to show us that we can be more than a conqueror in them. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then he makes this long laundry list. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, and in case he left anything out, nor anything else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a conqueror. That's more than a conqueror who can look at all those things and say, not going to separate me from my Jesus. Not going to stop me from loving Him and it's not going to stop Him from loving me. And by the way, you can shout and holler and accuse me all you want before the throne. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. No more condemnation for me. The law of sin and death has been canceled out by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I have glorious freedom. I have a purpose, a destiny. I've been justified. I've been reconciled. And I'm about to be glorified when Jesus raises me up out of this mortal body into my resurrection body. God is for us. Who can be against us? He's freed us from the law of sin and death. He's freed us from condemnation. We are children of God. Sons and daughters, heirs, joint heirs, predestined to be just like His Son and to share in all of the glory of His kingdom. We have hope. Glorious hope of His soon return. He loves us. We love Him. And nothing can separate us from that love. More than conquerors. Now, hopefully you won't have one of those down moments this week. But if it comes, you might want to start off here in Romans 8. Some really good stuff there. And... Rather than I, me, my, 40 times, like Paul did. Why don't you just forget about the I, forget about the me, forget about the myself, and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Let's stand. Father God, I thank You for the honesty in Your Word. Even the men and women of the Bible, the honesty 
about their situations and the struggles and the battles that they went through. To remind us that they were just men and women of like passions. They had the same flesh, the same weak, sinful nature we all had. But God, the good news of the gospel has now come to us. And I pray that you can enlarge our revelation, enlarge our understanding of what you have already accomplished for us. Through the cross, through the death of your Son becoming a sin offering for us, sin being condemned, Him conquering death and hell, destroying every work of the devil, rising from the grave, absolutely triumphant, seated at your right hand now, and interceding for us. God, we thank you for this marvelous plan of salvation. We thank you for the good news of all these wonderful truths that Paul brings out for us. After he sets up that black background, then he brings out the jewels of the gospel, justification, sanctification, glorification, more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. God, you've given us hope. You're in us. You're with us. You're working in all of our situations and you're causing everything in our lives to work together for good to bring us to that final end of being conformed to the very image and likeness of your Son. God, let each one of us leave this place today encouraged knowing who we are in Christ and knowing what you have planned and purposed for our lives. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Prepare your church. Prepare your bride. Help us to understand the times in which we are living. These are dark times. These are the last days. But it's for such a time as this that you've raised us up. Give us the strength. Give us the anointing. Give us the power and the authority to do all that you've called us to do in these last days.